So I'm. Are you? Do you think you're ready? Absolutely, All I'm right. ready. What time do we have? Eleven oh seven. Okay. Um, yeah. What's the date? We never know the date. When, whenever we do interviews. Twenty seventh of um, June. June. June twenty seventh. All right. So I'm here with um, Dr. Jeremy Geffen. And uh, you're, I, you and you, I understand, are a uh, distant cousin of, of Geffen himself. Well, that's the, that's the, uh, the word on the street, yeah. for sure. Yeah, I find that very interesting. Um, so the journey with, through cancer, healing and transforming the whole person. Um, you've worked with people I know. Um, mm -hmm. You're one of the more prominent um, doctors or oncologists who, and oncology is the... What is that? Oncology is the study of cancer and how do you help people who are going through what I call the journey through cancer and it really right. is a journey. I mean it can For be sure. a roller coaster ride. For sure. <clears throat> and so is that what you do? You actually help individuals or are you more writing and lecturing? And well I, I practiced, you know, I was in clinical medicine for 11 years and uh, started mm -hmm. a Integrative Cancer Center in Florida back in the mid '90s, hmm. and is that still going on? <clears throat> uh, no. After in 2003, I decided to close the center because I wanted to be able to be free to go out into the world and do more writing and speaking and lecturing and actually teach other physicians and hospitals and cancer centers um, what I had learned over many years of taking care of li uh, literally thousands of patients and their family members. Hmm. It's really an amazing time. Right. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. And, and working with family members is probably half the battle, right? With Without a doubt. And, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. So, uh, for me, with with Elephant Magazine, um, the the real interest in this story is is that um, obviously in the West, in America, particularly our relationship to illness, as our relationship to many different aspects of uh, life that can be challenging, is is. Um, somewhat strange. I mean, it mm -hmm. seems from a naive point of view, which is my point of view, I've been lucky to be healthy. I'm 31, so I haven't been in hospitals much. Um, <clears throat> but it seems like, you know, there's a pill for every problem. Right. And if the pills don't work, we kind of throw up our hands. And so it sure. seems like a lot of people who experience illness, um, any kind of illness, but something as serious as cancer, often are sort of desperate and confused and looking for other things like acupuncture, mm -hmm, Eastern sure. remedies. Um, so there's a lot of fear and panic and mm -hmm. and just wanting to live. So right. what is your sort of approach if someone were to say, hey, I've I've been diagnosed with cancer or I have a, I have a uh, you know, my, my wife or my husband has been diagnosed with cancer? <clears throat> well, I... I understand these questions because I lived through yeah. them myself, right. you know, personally. When I was in medical school, right. my father, you know, my beloved dad got diagnosed with a high-grade gastric cancer. While you were attending NYU, is that right? Yeah, while I was a senior in medical school. Right. And um, he uh, went through this journey. It was a very... And just to restate, he was very healthy. And, yeah, he yeah. was a young guy. He was 61 years old, very healthy, vigorous, vibrant, had right. a full-blown life, right. loved living, right. <clears throat> had, a, had a wonderful time living in New York City. He was married to a filmmaker, a French woman. They owned a couple of 
very well-known movie theaters in New York, and they were living a phenomenally creative and fulfilling life. And um, he was diagnosed with this high-grade cancer that had already metastasized at the time of his what diagnosis. What does that mean, metastasized? It had already spread. Okay. Let's just pause for one second. Sure. Let me turn this off because this... Yeah, good call. Metastasized <clears throat> spread. It yeah, already, it, it had already spread into his liver and to his lymph nodes. And so it was a really grim, dismal prognosis, to be really honest. And right. uh, this was back in 1985, over two decades ago. And um, <clears throat> we've come a long, long way since then. Not only in terms of our ability to diagnose and treat cancer using conventional means like chemotherapy and radiation and surgery and targeted therapies and immunotherapies. But we're also in the midst of a revolution in medicine in which millions and millions of people throughout the United States and even in other countries are very actively searching for a more holistic approach. Very few people in my experience as an oncologist really want to abandon conventional medicine, particularly when you're dealing with a life-threatening illness like cancer. Sure. The problem is uh, Western medicine is very, very effective for some diseases and very ineffective for many others. Right. Also, it's very you know, physically oriented, very mechanically oriented. It focuses on the problem, not on the person. It focuses on the disease, not on the person who has the disease. And <clears throat> this revolution that we're all a part of, you know, that particularly our generation is really, and the baby boom generation is really fueling this, this transformation. Um, and this is happening because people know that there's more. They want to be able to do more than just go to their doctor yeah. and passively receive drugs or surgery uh, and be sent home. So I found in my practice that um, there's a very natural progression that's very common, it's almost universal that people go through. Uh, and I began to notice this pattern uh, because after my own father died, I went on a search. You know, I really wanted to know the answer to a very specific question, and that is what does it really take for a human being to heal and transform at the deepest levels of their body, their mind, their heart, their soul, and their spirit in the face of an illness like cancer? But I mean, really, what does it really take? Right. No kidding, you know? Right. Uh, not to pay lip service to this, but to really dive into it. And so I searched the world over. I went to, you know, I finished my medical training, became an oncologist, but I also started traveling to the East. I went to Tibet to learn about Tibetan medicine, spent time in Nepal. Was that in 89 when you got the... Uh, that was my second trip uh -huh. uh, to Asia. Um, my first trip was... Um, was earlier, it was in 1986. I went to Nepal on a medical expedition. Uh -huh. And that's where I really, on that trip is where I really discovered the, the you know, sort of the, the majesty of these healing traditions of Ayurveda and Tibetan medicine. Because I was on an expedition to a small town uh, on the northern border of Nepal. It's called the Longtang Valley. It's a gorgeous, beautiful valley. And um, <clears throat> I was doing a research project studying the traditional indigenous forms of medicine in Nepal. And there were actually three of them. One is Tibetan medicine, one is Ayurvedic medicine, and then there's a third that's actually indigenous to the Nepalese people themselves. It's called Dami Jankri medicine, believe it or not. And I met these amazing healers, and I met a Tibetan Lama who was the medicine Buddha, if you will, the doctor for this whole valley. And... Um, 
was just unbelievably inspired. I had spent years studying these traditions, but from a spiritual perspective, before going to medical school. And I was amazed to learn and to discover that these traditions not only had incredible teachings that could help people spiritually, but they had a, you know thousands of year old traditions of healing the physical body and helping people live healthier lives. And they actually work <clears throat> to some extent. Well, um, there's no doubt that they have a lot of benefit for people. It's hard to say using very strict Western scientific criteria exactly what works for which diseases because there's been very, very little of these kind of studies have ever been done and it takes a lot of time and a lot of energy and a lot of money to study them. But They it, do the opposite of what you were saying before. They treat the person and the, the whole person. In the yeah, and that's what's so beautiful about these traditions is that they recognize <clears throat> much more fully than we do in the West that human beings are you know, multidimensional beings. We're all multidimensional beings. And what that means, very simply, Waylon, is that everybody has a body. We all have a physical body, but we also have a mind and a heart and a spiritual dimension. And we're also all interconnected. And so my whole work is focused on learning how we can very skillfully and ethically um, embrace every dimension of who we all are as human beings and do this in the context of modern medicine and in the context of modern life, which is very busy and hectic for most people. Sure. You know, the question is, how do we bring the knowledge and the wisdom of these great traditions into mm. mainstream medicine? Mm. I believe that when we blend them together, um, we really have something very powerful. If done properly, <clears throat> obviously. You can't just... I mean, if, if you know what you're doing. Like, if I tried to blend them together... Yeah, exactly. You know, someone mm -hmm. who's diagnosed with cancer who starts, you know, reading uh, Tibetan medicine books and tries to adopt various things, they won't know what they're doing. Right? Of course. I mean, it takes a lot of skill and a lot of, uh, of desire and intention to learn this. You know, one of, the, one of the things that I suffered through with my dad, me and my family back in the 80s, you know, mid-80s when he had cancer, was that we went looking around the country and around the world for physicians who knew uh, both worlds of medicine, who were very grounded in, in, in mainstream medicine but had an open-mindedness and understanding of these other traditions. It was very hard to find. And in fact, that became sort of the prototype inspiration for my work. I wanted to become, eventually, to become the kind of oncologist that I wished had been there for my dad. And I searched all over the world and couldn't find them. There were plenty of oncologists that were brilliant, caring people and fully grounded in the Western model. But the, all they could focus on was his tumor, his pathology report, his CAT scan results, and which chemo drugs to offer him. But they had very little to offer in terms of nutritional support, emotional healing, helping him understand how to deal with his mind, you know, his thoughts, his beliefs, how to connect with his spiritual essence. None of that was offered. And all of that, does that <clears throat> actually affect the physical health, you know, to some extent, in your experience? Yeah, in my experience, it helps yeah. profoundly. Now, I'm not prepared to say that taking a multidimensional approach to medicine will take a cancer that is incurable and make it curable. Right. Although... I'm not willing to say that it can't either. We just don't really fully know yet because we're just learning how to fully tap into the power of the mind, for example. We're, f we're just beginning to understand 
how deep emotional healing can impact the physical body. These, this is a whole new um, sure. realm of study. It's a really a brave new world of research. Well, it seems kind of common mm-hmm. sense. I mean, if mm-hmm. you take having to prove, prove it out of the equation, you take science out of the equation mm-hmm. and just say, is your emotional well-being going to affect your physical well-being? Of course. The so body like, and the mind are yeah. inseparably yeah. interwoven. They're yeah. inseparably like interconnected. Like I eat better when I'm happy, you know, mm-hmm. when I'm content, you know, I'm healthier usually. Sure, and when you... I exercise more. Yeah. And when, yeah, and when you eat better, you're happier. Right. As well. It goes both ways, right? Exactly. There's, there's no question. So, <clears throat> one of the reasons why a lot of the research has not shown, so far has not shown significant survival advantages, let's say for people with cancer who participate in support groups. Well, I think there's a lot of reasons. One is that the support groups um, are only focusing on one band in a big spectrum of what a human being is or what they need. Mm. Um, and it's there's a lot of other issues that are not even being addressed. For example, there's the mind, and there are the, the thoughts and beliefs that we're conscious of. But as Freud and Jung showed us, there's also an unconscious mind. Mm. And so very often it's a human being's unconscious beliefs and unconscious emotions that have an even bigger impact on their choices, their decisions, what they're willing to accept and not, than what they are thinking consciously. So our job is to learn how to skillfully embrace every dimension of what a human being is, including their unconscious mind, dealing with the physical body, but the mental body, the emotional body, and their spiritual essence as well. And by unconscious, you're generally referring to just assumptions and fear and things that you may not really even notice that you're, you know... Yeah, yeah. in fact, the vast majority of input from the so-called external world is filtered out of our conscious awareness. You know, we'd go, <laughs> we'd go stark raving mad if we were able to really, if the, if the human mind was able to let in all the input, all the sensory input happening at once, we couldn't take it, it would overwhelm the system. So by definition, the mind selects certain pieces of information, certain sensory input, and it blocks others. In the same way, the mind um, allows thoughts and beliefs and emotions uh, to be present in consciousness, and there are many, many more that are way too threatening, that are disturbing, that are pushed into the unconscious mind. Um, But as again, as Freud and Jung showed the world so dramatically in the last century, uh, it's those unconscious feelings and drives and emotions that, that, that have a huge impact on what happens for people, what choices they make, what decisions they make. Um, and this is also just one dimension of what a human being is. But this is a very important one that's never addressed uh, coherently, or I should say hasn't yet been fully addressed coherently in the mainstream world. This is part of what I'm trying to bring into um, modern medicine, is an appreciation for all these realms of being. And is this kind of more holistic <clears throat> approach, would you call it a holistic approach? I would call it, uh, what, I'm call, what I choose to call it is a yeah. multidimensional, multidimensional approach. Multidimensional. Yeah. Is that sort of even on the radar of conventional medicine at this point? I mean, thanks to your efforts. And, I mm-hmm. mean, I see you know, mm-hmm. the New York Times giving it a great review in the Journal of National Cancer Institute, mm-hmm. um, Deepak Chopra and others, you know, uh, what's his name, Dean Ornish? Sure. I mean, it seems like 
having some uh, well we're starting yeah we're starting to get this message out you know there's been a there's been a progression um, or an evolution in medicine Mm. and you can say in general terms over the last couple of decades we've gone from an era which I experienced when I was in medical school back in the 80s where there was a huge chasm between conventional medicine and so-called alternative medicine and you didn't dare talk about alternative therapies if you were in a mainstream medical center. It was really taboo. Um, because it was just considered to be kind of hokum. And, exactly. Yeah. <clears throat> Completely discounted, a priori, de facto, ignored, and actually ridiculed as not only meaningless, but probably harmful. Uh-huh. So we went from an era of conventional medicine, which was very, very dominant, and then there was conversation about alternative medicine. And there began to be reports, you know, the famous um, uh, report from James Reston, who went to China and had a surgery under acupuncture. And this started to come out in the Western world, and people began to say, maybe there is something from these other traditions that can be meaningful for people. And then we went from the era of conventional medicine that was completely separate from alternative medicine to a period in the 90s where there was a new lexicon where it was called CAM or complementary and alternative medicine and we had this wonderful era where suddenly even congress was a, was a, you know apportioning funds to develop a national center for complementary and alternative medicine and there was funding and research to explore these kinds of different therapies and then in the last 4 or 5 years we've been in an era that has had an even newer term that's called integrative medicine. Mm. So now it's acceptable, even in the high levels of mainstream medicine, to say that, um, particularly with in, you know diseases that are very very challenging, like cancer, um, that it's acceptable to say that we can have an integrative approach, which means let's look at how can we integrate safe and effective complementary therapies and alternative therapies into mainstream medicine, blend them skillfully with conventional therapies. And so we're in an era now that's called integrated medicine. But nothing ever stops. Evolution always continues. And I believe that the next evolutionary step beyond integrated medicine will be an era that I call the era of multidimensional medicine, where we don't apologize for the fact any longer or minimize the fact any longer that we really are multidimensional beings and that our thoughts and our beliefs and our feelings and emotions have a very important impact on our physical health and where we also uh, can embrace not only the physical, the mental, the emotional dimensions of our being but also the spiritual dimension and also begin to understand how our interconnectedness with each other and with the world affects our physical health. So I think that's the next step. That's where we're going. Hmm. And it's it's exciting time. I mean, it's, yeah. you know, and, and, and trying to be a midwife for this is an interesting right. um, endeavor. Right. But it's... Carry the flag for that. Yeah, but yeah. it's really it's really meaningful. I mean, I, I can't think of anything more meaningful to do with, you know, with my work. That's great. Mm-hmm. So cancer, uh, Brian and I were talking this morning um, at a cafe where we met before. Um, about sort of the larger picture. I mean, cancer, there is no cure for cancer. Is that correct? Well, there I mean, are many... into remission sometimes, but... 
Well, you got to remember there are, there are you know somewhere between 100 and 200 different kinds of cancers, but let's right. just say well over 100 different right. kinds. So, first of all, it's helpful to, to to remember that cancer is not one disease, but it's many many different diseases with lots of different manifestations. But it's one family or something. It's a family of They're diseases. All called cancer for some reason: prostate cancer, breast cancer, lung cancer. Right, skin and, cancer. and the, the reason for that is that there is a there are some common underlying genetic features and clinical features that underlie almost all cancers. You know, there is some genetic malfunction, if you will, in the DNA. That's, and that's sort of a, of a universal characteristic of all cancers, whether it's prostate or lung or breast or colon or brain tumors or skin cancer. Right. But having said that, it's important to remember that they're very, very different and that some cancers are very indolent and they grow for years or decades and rarely kill people. Some are highly virulent and they will, right. you know, can, can kill people. Overnight, practically. Maybe not overnight, but um, in a matter of weeks or, or, or months, for right. sure. Right. Um, and um, there are some cancers that are curable, believe it or not, with just surgery, meaning you just remove them and the, the, the risk of them coming back is very, very small particularly when they're diagnosed at a very early stage. And then there are other cancers that can be diagnosed at, a, at an early stage, but because of their genetic makeup, because of other factors, um, they have a high risk of coming back and really hurting people. So it's a complex field, and it's challenging, and it takes a lot of, of um, knowledge and wisdom and understanding to know how to understand where you are when dealing with cancer and how to respond most effectively. And that's actually a good segue into one of the main themes of my book, The Journey Through Cancer, which is that I discovered, Waylon, that there are actually seven specific areas of inquiry and exploration that almost every single human being universally encounters when they're going through the journey through cancer. And they're so universal, in fact, that they're encountered whether it's dealing with cancer or heart disease, or even if you're dealing with a broken heart or a divorce or um, you know any life challenge, which we all encounter, we're wired up as human beings to seek healing and wholeness in some very fundamental ways. I discovered this pattern because after my father died, as I said earlier, I wanted to know what how to help people most effectively. And so I spent a lot of time with my patients, talking to them, asking them if they would tell me what mattered to them the most, what made the biggest difference for them, what their deepest concerns were, what um, what were the deepest things that inspired them to heal. And over a number of years, after talking to hundreds of patients and listening to their stories, I recognized this pattern that I call the seven levels of healing. And these are seven areas that are distinct but intimately interrelated. And I talk about them in detail in my book, The Journey Through Cancer, because I wanted people all over the world to be able to understand where they were in this journey, to understand where they needed to put their focus and their attention so they could navigate through this maze and what for many people is experienced as a jungle um, as skillfully and effectively as possible. So um, you outlined those quite clearly mm -hmm. in the book and mm -hmm. elsewhere, um, just in this magazine article. Mm -hmm. um, 
but uh, do you want to do you want to walk us through those steps? Yeah, that would be great. Briefly, mm-hmm. yeah. sure. So, generally speaking, there is a fairly organic progression that people go through when they're diagnosed with cancer. And the first, you know, the first phase of the journey usually um, is quite shocking and disturbing for most people. Right. One of the most amazing things that I experience as an oncologist is how many people I took care of who had cancer today who thought they were fine yesterday. And so it's a very poignant reminder of many of the truths of the great spiritual traditions, including the impermanence of life and how uncertain life is, and yet we take life for granted. So <clears throat> one of the blessings of, of, of my many, many years of, of, of being an oncologist is that I know that life is impermanent and, and, and can vanish in a heartbeat, because I've seen this happen to so many people, as I said, who, who had cancer today and yesterday they thought they were fine. So oftentimes when people are diagnosed with cancer, there's this sense of, of shock and overwhelm. And there's an avalanche of questions that's accompanied by the diagnosis. What is this cancer? How did I get it? Where did it come from? What are my treatment options? Am I going to live or die? Right. Um, will I be disfigured? Uh, and then there's a host will of... my insurance pay for it? I was going to... Yeah, I was going to just say there's a host of practical questions uh-huh. too. You know, will my insurance pay for this? Do I need a second opinion? Who's going to take care of my children when I'm going through chemotherapy or surgery? This is a big challenge. I mean, it's for many people, it's the biggest challenge of, of their life. <clears throat> so we have to begin here, and this is what I call level one, or education and information, because there's a natural, um, compelling need to have practical meaningful answers to these questions and to get them as quickly as possible so you can make effective choices. It's important because it's very clear that people who understand their disease, understand their treatment options, have the best outcomes, um, have the best chance of getting the maximum benefit from their care. So in level one, we focus very clearly on making sure that every individual has the knowledge, the information, the education that they need to make the best choices for them or their loved ones. But there's another reason why we begin in level one with education information, and that's because until the mind is quieted and comforted, it's impossible to go home and relax and even get a good night's sleep. Um, It's impossible to enter into the deeper levels of healing, to kind of go up the, the chain, if you will, from level one to two and three and all the way up to level seven, these deeper levels of healing. So the process begins in level one, and it's completely universal. Usually, there's a period of time where people are appropriately focusing on getting the information that they need. It's a, it's a gathering information, gathering phase. It's related, you know, to a very real degree to the root chakra, you know, to the muladhara chakra, survival. You've got to get this information in order to survive. But the next, there's, a, there's another impulse that happens immediately, which is to reach out to loved ones, to others. And this moves us into level two, which is called connection with others. And you see this universally. People immediately will reach out to their family, their friends, to be held. It's a, it's a universal human instinct. Um, you know, we're all part of the web of life, as Chief Seattle said. 
And the great poet John Donne famously said, no man is an island. And this is rarely more true than when dealing with cancer. But in fact, it's true with life. Nobody, no one can navigate through life alone. No one can navigate through cancer alone. And a diagnosis of cancer is an incredibly powerful reminder of our interconnectedness. There's a lot of data, interestingly enough, in the scientific literature that shows that people who are socially isolated actually have a higher risk of getting many diseases and even dying from diseases. So social isolation is actually a risk factor, not only for morbidity, but for mortality, and not only from cancer, but from virtually every disease you can think of. So it's a reminder of how important it is um, to make sure that everyone has a good support network on the journey through cancer. And this is level two, connection with others. Now, by the way, you know, if you roll back the clock to 9-11, I've done this with many, many lectures, can show you how the whole country eventually went through the seven levels of healing in the day and the hours and minutes and hours and days and weeks after 9-11. Because most people immediately after 9-11 were glued to their TV set for hours watching CNN or some other TV. Trying to figure out what happened. And yeah, they were, the whole country. Going to happen and exactly. The whole country was plunged into level one, into an education, information gathering, seeking moment. And usually after a very short period of time, a few minutes or 10 minutes or half an hour, almost everybody universally did what? What was the next thing that people we did? All got together and... People gathered together, or they picked up their telephone or their cell phone, right. and right. they immediately tried to call who? Right. Their loved ones, their family members. Huh. And so the whole country, within minutes, went through level one and level two of the seven levels of healing um, en masse. 250, almost 300 million people went through this process. Right. Be why? They didn't go to the Barnes & Noble and get my book, you know, and open it up and say, okay, now what's the first thing to do? And the second thing... It's because this is how we're wired up instantly, I mean instinctively as human beings, to seek wholeness and healing in the face of a crisis. So that's a brief overview of level one and level two. In my experience, there is a very common moment that occurs for almost everybody. After they've got their diagnosis, after they've gotten a basic amount of information about their disease and treatment, after they've connected with their family and they've kind of shored up their support network. And very often this third level will only begin to appear after they've even started their basic treatment. But there'll come a moment when they look at me and they say, hey doc, you know, I understand my treatment, I'm connected, all the details are basically getting worked out. What more can I do? What else can I do to help myself? And this is the opening into level three, which is what I call the body's garden. And this is a doorway into the realm of the whole world of complementary and alternative medicine. So this is where we want to look at things like, what do I eat? How can I improve my nutrition so I can get through this effectively? Um, what diet, I'm, what vitamins or supplements should I take? What about acupuncture or massage or Reiki or yoga or exercise? What are the role, what's the role of all these therapies? So this is, this is the realm in which I believe the world of complementary and alternative medicine finds its natural home. And I use the metaphor of the body as garden because I was inspired by this years ago when I started traveling in Asia. You know, in the West, we think of the body as a machine. And the doctor, by extension, is a mechanic. 
Now, this is great, and it works very, very effectively for a lot of things, but we also know that it's very ineffective for a lot of diseases. And even in oncology, despite the incredible advances that we have, there are still many, many, many cancers we cannot cure. So people naturally want to know what else they can do. So in level three, we begin to invite people to think of their body not as a machine, but as a garden. And actually not only as a garden, but as a sacred garden, as a precious, living, breathing organism. <clears throat> and if you want to know what you need to have a healthy body, just ask yourself, what do you need to have a healthy garden? And they're, I, they're very much the same. Because in order to have a healthy garden, you need good fertilizer. Right? So this corresponds to food and nutrition. In order to have a healthy garden, you need water. This is behind the admonition that doctors give their patients to drink six or eight glasses of water a day. <clears throat> it's just to water their garden of their being. You also need um, sunshine. Can't grow a good garden without sunshine. Same thing for human beings. We need to be outside. We need fresh air. We need sunshine. In fact, people who stay in the dark inside all the time get a disorder that's called SAD, SAD, which stands for Seasonal Affective Disorder. So it actually affects our well-being not to have sunshine. The other thing you need to have a healthy garden is you got to till the soil. And tilling the soil corresponds to exercise. Because when you till the soil of a garden, you're bringing oxygen deep into the roots. And when you exercise, we're bringing oxygen, you know, or in the Eastern traditions, vital prana into our cells. And this is extremely important and life-affirming. Life and then there are some other things. For example, very often you need to weed your garden. There are weeds that grow. Same thing in our own physical bodies. In fact, a lot of diseases can be thought of as weeds growing in the garden of our being. And one of the beautiful ways that we can help the physical body is by detoxifying the body, cleansing it, pulling out the weeds effectively through a whole variety of means that are available for helping people to cleanse and detoxify. Now again, all this stuff is not offered in place of mainstream medicine, particularly when dealing with something like cancer, but it's a powerful way of supplementing what we're doing in oncology. And then there are a couple of other things you need to have a healthy garden, like patience, for yeah. one, right? Yeah. We live in a culture where people tend to want instant results. <clears throat> and I understand that because I'm part of this culture. But I've also learned that we need to cultivate a sense of patience. There are seasons of life and healing takes time. Most diseases did not appear overnight and usually it takes a little time um, to, to develop a, a, um, a sense of pace and timing. And also, we need to love the garden. And this is something that's very often forgotten completely, even by people who are you know, um, very avidly pursuing a natural lifestyle. Um, it's very easy to be lost in the trap of eating raw foods and exercising and doing two hours of yoga a day and to actually fail to really love yourself and to love your body and to really fill it with um, calm, patient, nurturing energy. So I think this whole spectrum of, 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 of modalities of healing and therapies can be blended really, really beautifully.
and, and combined in this seven levels of healing program, and this is where they belong in level three. The great news, though, is that there's even four more levels beyond this. It gets really interesting. Go for it. Go for it? <clears throat> okay. Um, levels one, two, and three, Waylon, are focused fundamentally on what people need to survive a crisis like cancer. You need really good medical care, education information. You need a good support network. And you must feed and nourish and cleanse and detoxify the body. But most of these modalities are really directed in the outer world. To a very real degree, they, they correspond to the first three chakras, which are about survival. Level four is called emotional healing, and this represents a huge and fundamental shift in attention away from the outer world and towards the inner world. So we begin to let go of things like drugs and surgery and radiation and diets and exercise and support groups. We begin to let go, or I should say, um, we begin to allow our focus to let go of, 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 of um, being so fixated on these outer realms and begin to spend some of our time and attention on the inner realm, particularly diving into the inner chambers of the heart. Because there's a, probably a huge amount of disappointment and anger and yes, first, hopelessness. Yes. <clears throat> Actually, there's everything lies in the human heart. Everything you can imagine or conceive is in there. Um, if you are a human being, you've lived more than you know, 10 or 20 years or 30 years on the earth, um, there's going to be pain. There's going to be hurt and disappointment and suffering. Most of us try to push that down in order to survive. Many, many people with cancer, in my experience, um, are just like all of us, that they come to this diagnosis with a history that has included many great moments of success and joy and fulfillment and, and an equal number of moments of life that have been filled with sadness and disappointment and, and frustration. A lot of these emotions can be accentuated when suddenly you're confronted with a life-threatening diagnosis and the sense of losing control, which is very, very common. So I believe that it's very important that all these emotions be brought out into the light of awareness and where they can be seen and embraced and healed and released in the light of love. This, in my experience, has an incredibly powerful impact on the physical body. Now whether, again, whether it can transform um, an incurable cancer into a curable one, nobody knows. And no one knows because no one has ever really done, to my knowledge, the deepest possible emotional healing work in the context of a clinical trial. The deepest kinds of emotional healing work that can, that can be um, done with human beings has never, to my knowledge, been f really formally studied in an effective way. So we don't know it's hard the impact. To I mean, even if you were to conduct it <clears throat> and to guide people, it's hard to see right. if they actually go there for themselves. Exactly. It's yeah. very hard to measure. It's very hard to study. Yeah. And again, it has to be done in the context of these other dimensions of who people are as well and who we all are. But I can tell you from my own experience and that of many other people, um, it can transform your experience 
of the journey in a very important way. And everybody can relate to this. You know, when you're sad or depressed or lonely or going through a very, very hard time in your life, and everybody that I know has been through times like this. I'm sure you have. Yes? I'm sure. Of course. Yeah. Okay, so you can remember back to those times. It's hard to be as effective as you want to be. Isn't that your experience? Mm -hmm. It's hard to be as productive and to be as um, efficient as you would ordinarily want to be when you're carrying around a heavy emotional burden. Everybody can relate to this. So we need to learn how to help people in mainstream medicine relieve their emotional pain in a very effective, in a, in a safe way. And this is the focus of level four emotional healing. In my experience, it's one of the most important parts of this whole seven level healing process. And in fact, I've often said that uh, over many years of, 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 of practice, I've not really seen a single human being with cancer who had a very deep and long-lasting healing transformation who also didn't go through an equally deep and healing emotional transformation. A sense of really coming to peace um, with their circumstance. Um, not to become passive and fatalistic, but to no longer be, in a sense, be at war internally with themselves. And this is very, very important. Now, not only are there negative emotions, or so-called negative emotions, like fear and anger and frustration, and even rage right. or hurt or disappointment that needs to be um, released from the heart, um, that's an important part of level four, but there's an equally important part, which is to discover also the source of love and joy and fulfillment and inspiration that lies in the human heart. These emotions are really life-affirming. They're powerfully, um, they're very powerful medicine, if you will. And so it's very important not only to help release the toxic emotions that weigh everybody down, but by clearing those away to get to the root of the inspiring emotions that every human being is seeking that help our bodies heal. So that's a, that's a very short overview of a big subject of so level four. So people particularly have to be <clears throat> joyful and happy about, you know, if they know they're dying, if it's a terminal cancer? I mean, it was, I would... Mm -hmm. If, if, we're my, if I were going through that, I'd be like, what's the point, you know? <laughs> well, that, yes, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I mean, I would have a lot, I'd have plenty of rage and disappointment and stuff. I don't know, I don't know how I'd discover some joy in that. Maybe just joy in being alive for the period I was alive. But. Well, f most people need a little coaching. Yeah. And a little guidance. <laughs> I mean, is that part of level that's, four? That's part of level four. So not just alone, kind of really. It's part of level four, and it becomes a very important part of level six, life assessment, which we're going to get to okay. in a minute. Right. But there's a step in between, because we don't want any of this to be false. Mm -hmm. All of this has to be right. real, right. and it has to be authentic. Um, more than ever before, it's imperative that our generation, Waylon, create a system of medicine that is really authentic, that feeds people what's real and what's deeply nourishing. You know, I had a patient who I'll never forget named Ash, who um, was a dear, dear friend of mine, and he battled colon cancer for almost seven years. And 
eventually it recurred and it was it was really widespread and as he was dying he grasped my hand in the hospital one day and he said Jeremy don't ever forget that the menu is not the food mm-hmm. he ash loved the seven levels of healing he went That's through right. all these levels but he said don't ever forget you know as you're out there sharing your knowledge teaching what you've learned that the menu is not the food and what this means is um, the food is what's real the food is the experience of love and caring and presence um, what I've learned so well is that it's not so much you know the the laundry list of therapies that a doctor's office or a hospital can offer people that really matters it's the quality of love and care and consciousness that the people who are offering these modalities bring to the table and this is somewhat what Ash was pointing to when he said remember the menu is not the food well it's also not just following the seven steps and saying now I'm in step four I'm gonna do this okay that was great now I'm gonna move to you know right it's actually really doing it probably it's a it's about really doing it and having the experience yeah yeah actually having the experience of seeing that when the emotions are healed worlds of 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 energy appear and and open up that are not accessible before and so part of this involves level five Mm -hmm. which is called the nature of mind because you know the mind um, can drive people crazy it can go morning noon and night and the function of the mind is to judge and evaluate um, and compare things it's basically fundamentally its job it's to say this is good this is bad this is safe this is not safe I like this I don't like this and you know the the Eastern contemplative traditions talk about the mind as if it's a monkey or a wild monkey that you know jumps from mm-hmm. tree to tree to tree in a restless fashion never leaving uh, a person a moment's peace so in order to really successfully navigate through the seven levels of healing you've got to become aware of the nature of the mind and how it functions and begin to understand how to have some distance from the mind so that it's not running you like a, a wild runaway train down the track so in level five we look at three things our thoughts our beliefs and the meaning that we consciously and unconsciously give to events there's a classic story that I often tell about two patients who I worked with who both had cancer and they were two men in their mid-fifties they were named Jim and George and they both had a highly um, aggressive widely metastatic melanoma that had invaded into their lungs and their liver and um, they were and melanoma is a type of cancer melanoma is a very um, aggressive form of skin cancer that can be very hard to cure if it spreads if it's found early on the skin and is removed then it's highly curable but as it invades and gets deeper and if it spreads it becomes very very hard to cure and these two men were um, very remarkable in how similar they were in their age their socioeconomic status the specific uh, features of their melanoma and their pathology 
the areas of their body where their cancer spread to. It was hard to tell the two men apart. On the other hand, they were completely different human beings. And if you met them, you were amazed at how different they were. Uh, the first gentleman, Jim, was a very angry guy. This was a man who, uh, no matter what you did, it was never good enough. You know, when he was in the hospital, food was always too hot or too cold. Mm. The nurses either came too often or not enough. Mm. And there are some people like this that are just hurting right. deeply, and they express their pain right. by being angry. Um, well, that's <clears> somewhat not having gone through level four, right? You haven't dealt with all that anger. and Totally. Yeah. Exactly. Had, had dealt with it very little. Right. Now, I remember one day when, when Jim was in the hospital, I asked him, why do you believe you got cancer? And I'll never forget his answer. He looked at me and he said, you know, Dr. Geffen, I know why I got cancer. I got cancer because I'm a sinner and I've sinned. And God is punishing me for my sins. And his words felt like a knife stabbing me in the heart. It was so painful because he was angry for sure, but he was a beautiful man and there was a loving heart in there. And when he revealed so vulnerably his truth, that he believed he was a sinner, that he believed he deserved to suffer because of something he had done. It was just agonizing to me to hear this. And I realized that if we didn't work on this, it wouldn't matter how many gallons of chemotherapy we gave him. It wouldn't possibly have a chance of working if he deeply believed inside that he deserved to suffer. Even if we were able to get his cancer in remission, he'd still be a miserable, suffering human being. And we wouldn't have done the fullest that we could do for him. So I did, an inter I did an intervention with him over the coming days where I just very gently guided him through the seven levels of healing, where we did some emotional healing work in level four, and where we began to examine his beliefs about the meaning of his illness. And it totally transformed him. And it didn't cure his cancer, but it changed everything about his experience of life. It changed his relationship with his doctors, with the, the nurses, with the medical staff, completely transformed his relationship with his wife. And perhaps most importantly, it transformed the legacy that he left his children because they remembered his father as a kind and loving, joyful man, not as an angry and bitter human being. So that was a very powerful example, uh, which there are so many, many in my experience. Now, the other fellow, George, Again, same age, same diagnosis. So many things about George were demographically identical to Jim, but George was a very different kind of person. He was kind, smiling, happy, grateful all the time. This is a guy who was joyful, even though he had cancer, who found that place of joy in himself. And it was very inspiring to be with him, and he was the kind of guy that everybody would... Um, fight over to take care of when he went in the hospital or if he came in our cancer center the nurses would would run to see who could take his blood pressure that day because it was just so beautiful being around him and when he was in the hospital one day I asked him if he would tell me why he believed that he got cancer and I'll never forget his answer equally powerful but completely different than Jim's answer and George said to me 
Dr. Geffen, I don't know why I got cancer. In fact, I have no idea why this happened. I wish to God it had never happened. I wish I didn't have to deal with this. And I certainly don't know why I got it. But I'll tell you this. This cancer is bringing me closer to my Creator and to my loved ones than I could have ever imagined. And I wish I never had to go through this. But because of this experience, I have met people who are more kind and loving than I could have imagined. I never dreamed there were so many strangers that I would meet that would offer their love and kindness to me. I never dreamed that I would have an experience that would bring me so close to my wife and children. And so even though I wish this didn't happen to me, on some level, deep inside, I know it's okay because of who I'm becoming, what I'm discovering, and the amount of love and kindness I've experienced as a result. So I would ask you a question. What's the difference between Jim and George? Two men with the same diagnosis, same prognosis, same demographics, and yet completely different human beings living in two different worlds. And on one level, the only difference between the two of them is the meaning that they gave to their illness in their head. Right. That's amazing. An amazing story, but true. Yeah. And this is true for all of us, Waylon. All of us, every single human being alive, assigns meaning to events in their life. The problem, of course, is that most of the meanings that we assign to, to events in our life, particularly dramatic ones, we don't do it consciously. We don't do it with conscious choice. It's, it's almost... Um, it's often programmed from our cultural conditioning, very often from our religious upbringing. We immediately assume that we know what something means. We never ask ourselves, could there be another meaning to this? What else could it mean? So in level five, the nature of mind, this is what we do. We help and guide people to ask themselves, what are my thoughts about my illness? What are my beliefs about it? What meaning am I giving this? Is this the most effective and empowered meaning I could give this challenge? Is there another meaning or other beliefs I could have that would be more inspiring, more empowering, that would create an experience of me having a broader range of options, not a narrower one? And when we do this in um, my training programs, in the workshops that I offer, in the retreats, in the seminars that I offer, it's extraordinary to see what happens for people because suddenly they have access to new possibilities that before were not available to them. So this is part of a multi-dimensional approach to medicine. I think it's an important one. Yeah, it's great. So there's still two more levels. Yeah. Now it gets even more interesting because we've handled level one, education information. Kind of know what your basic treatment is. We've built a strong support network in level two in connection with others. In level three, we've started to learn how to care for your body, not as a machine, but as a sacred garden that empowers each human being to, to cultivate the garden of their being in a way that they are the gardeners of their own health. In level four, emotional healing, we've learned how to release pain and, and, and fear and sadness and grief that is common to every human being and tap into the wellspring of love and joy that's in the human heart. That's very life-affirming. Level five, begin to understand the nature of the mind 
and how to examine our thoughts and our beliefs and the meaning that we give to events and make sure that we're choosing really inspiring meanings and inspiring beliefs. And then in level six, we enter into what's called life assessment. And here we ask three questions. And the first one is, what is the meaning and purpose of your life? Remember earlier I said that one of the great lessons I've learned as an oncologist is that none of us know how long we're going to live. In fact, it's one of the great teachings of the Buddha. You know, one of the one of the most fundamental um, tenets of the Buddha Dharma is the impermanence of life and how fleeting life is. So it's very important to ask, what is the real meaning and purpose of your life, regardless of your age? Um, and this is especially important when you're dealing with a, a diagnosis like cancer that lifts the veil of the illusion of immortality. For most people, this diagnosis, or, you know, eradicates that illusion once and for all that we're all gonna that you're gonna live forever. So, having said that, it's useful to ask, why am I alive? What really matters the most? And am I living my life? in a way that's moving me in the direction of my deepest purpose. Most people that I've done this process with find that there's some adjustments that they want to make about their choices so that they can live in a way that's moving them more fully towards their deepest purpose. Now the second question is related to the first and that is what are your top 20 goals for the next year? You know, if you were only going to live for another year how would you want to live? What would you want to do? Are you doing things today and tomorrow and this week and next week that are really bringing you joy at the deepest level? Or are you spending time doing things that are not fulfilling and maybe even unhealthy? And so the second question supports the first. And the third question that I ask in level six life assessment is, how do you want to be remembered after you're gone? Remembering that we're all going to leave the earth, are you living your life in a way that's consistent with your deepest values? And a lot of people will say to me, you know, gosh, I want to be remembered as a great parent. And they realize, if I want to be remembered as a great parent, I better spend more time with my kids. Hmm. Or other people will say, I want to be remembered as a really loving spouse. And then they realize, well, if I really want that, maybe I better stop being so critical of my spouse and figure out how to be more supportive. Or other people will say, I want to be remembered as somebody who really gave to my community. And then they go, wow, you know, maybe I, I should give more. Maybe I should spend more time doing things for other people. And so it's beautiful to see how people reinvent themselves and redirect their focus uh, in a way that makes them happier every single day, even if they're living with cancer. And this is what's so remarkable. The whole point of this seven levels of healing is so that we're not just trying to treat diseases, but ask ourselves, how do we heal and transform at the deepest level so that we can experience love and joy and fulfillment here and now, even in the midst of cancer, regardless of our circumstance. And that's a beautiful segue into level seven, which is the nature of spirit. And here, I just invite all of us to become quiet and still 
and feel into that realm of existence where we're all interconnected. It's that part of existence that's been given many names throughout history by all of the great spiritual and healing traditions of the world. You know, in Buddhism, they call it shunyata, or emptiness, or nirvana. Um, in Hinduism, they can call it Brahman, or the Atman. Uh, in the mystical traditions of Judaism, the Kabbalah, they call it the Ein Sof, that which is beyond even the possibility of name and form, the Ein Sof. <clears throat> even in mystical traditions of Christianity, they can call it Christ consciousness or the kingdom of heaven within. All these world traditions have all pointed to this timeless, dimensionless, non-physical aspect or dimension of human existence where we're not only interconnected as beings, but where in fact we're the same being. It's the vast, infinite ocean of consciousness or love or awareness out of which all phenomena are arising and falling away again in an endless cycle forever and ever. So this nature of spirit is a very, very important dimension of our existence to focus on because I believe it's not only the source of the, ult the ultimate source of love and joy and fulfillment that we all seek, but it's also the doorway through which physical healing appears in the material world. You know, when you cut your finger and the doctor sews it up, puts a bandage on it, the, the, the sutures and the bandage don't cause the wound to heal. That comes from an indescribable realm that can't be named and can't be um, even comprehended fully by the mind. And when we give drugs or surgery to people, these are very, very powerful methods for helping the body heal, but they don't cause the body to heal, and they're not the deepest source of healing that everyone is seeking. That source, I believe, is this realm of spirit. Whatever name you want to give it, it's the same fundamental dimension of reality. And so it's very important to focus on the nature of spirit <clears throat> in the journey through cancer or other life challenges for three reasons. First of all, when we take some time to focus on the nature of spirit, the whole journey is calmed down, is softened. You know, the ups and downs and the turbulent waves of life are easier to navigate. We can surf a little bit better on the waves of life. It's almost as if you can invoke the image of the ocean. And when there are big, big storms, you know, Hurricane Katrina pummeling existence in the outer realm, there's a place at the very bottom of the ocean that's still and quiet. And that place is inside of everybody. It's inside of you and me and every human being. So that's the first reason to focus on this, because it calms down the waves. And believe me, when you're going through the journey through cancer, there can be a lot of waves, and they can be really turbulent. So it's very helpful to be able to touch that place of stillness inside. Second thing that happens is you just become able to make better choices. And even as healers, as doctors or nurses or professionals, we can do our job better because we're not as caught in the drama, uh, the Sturm und Drang of, of life, and the, the, you know, the vicissitudes of life, and the ups and downs. We just become more effective. 
making better choices. And the third reason to focus on this is one that I mentioned earlier. It, it's not a guarantee that you're going to have a cure or that your cancer will go in remission. But I actually believe that it gives people the very best chance because it allows them to let go of this, this impulse to, 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 to do and to take action and to focus and exert our will and to, and to enter into this other domain of existence called the domain of being where we surrender and let go. And I believe that the people who have the very, very best outcome and who understand the essence of healing are those that can consistently take focused action and, 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 and intention and wrap it in the arms of surrender. Right. And so this yeah. is sort of the heart of what Level 7 Nature Spirit is all about. So these seven levels, Waylon, cover the whole spectrum of what a human being is. This is, in my experience, a truly multi-dimensional approach to medicine, to wellness, and to life. Because it honors very clearly, very skillfully, and very coherently our body, our mind, our heart, our soul, our spirit, and our deep interconnection with each other, and with the world, and ultimately with the cosmos. So even if, even if it's not, you know, what's contained in this book and in your experience isn't going to be a guarantee that you're going to cure cancer, it's a way to sort of almost, you know, almost uh, use this horrible, horrible disease as a blessing, you know, turn it into a blessing for your life and for those around you. And it can help. That is certainly one of the goals of this process, but... Yeah. But on a more practical level, you know, there's an imperative question that, that, that occurs when you're dealing with cancer, which is very simply, what is the most enlightened and empowered and conscious way to respond? You know, you can res we can all respond to a crisis based on fear, based on anger, based on um, a sense of outrage. And if we do that, we're not going to be as effective as we can be. So the seven levels of healing, at the very least, is a way to say, okay, here's the circumstance. What's the most enlightened and conscious and empowered way to respond? Ah, here are the seven levels of healing. These are the seven universal domains of inquiry and exploration that I can choose to explore. And by doing this, I get to navigate through this journey as skillfully and as effectively as possible and we'll see how it impacts our outcome. Now, in my experience, in using this method and this philosophy and this program with many, you know, with thousands of patients and loved ones, I've seen beautiful transformations. I've seen people's lives open up in ways that they couldn't have imagined. I'm not, I can't say that people were cured, but I can tell you very consciously or, or very um, clearly that many, many people far outlived their standard prognosis. During the years that I was running the cancer center and offering this program, we were working so hard taking care of people and developing the program that we didn't have the infrastructure to actually document its effects. It's one of the things I'm hoping to do in this next phase of my career is to work with organizations where we can implement the infrastructure to study very clearly how this approach affects people's lives. What is the impact of taking a really, 
uh, sorry, a radically multidimensional approach to healing. Um, and how does that impact survival? How does that impact quality of life? What are the economic impacts of this? Um, I actually believe that it will be cost effective over the long term. You know, that when you, what we found is that when we take care of our patients during the day, they don't get sick as often during the night. And it's, it's actually, I think, cost effective to help solve many of the problems and challenges that people encounter and to give them the tools and the distinctions they need to do this so they don't have to come to the emergency room as often. They don't need to come to the doctor as often. So that's another area that we hope to study. And another area that I'm very interested in has to do with um, the basic science elements of this. What changes can this cause in our immune function, for example? And there's a whole field of medicine that I've been involved in for many years called proteomics, which is the study of how the proteins that are circulating in our blood relate to our genetics and our physiology and how proteins are expressed in the blood in response to certain diseases and how um, they are um, expressed in response to stress and how um, we might even be able to understand how our proteins are expressed in our blood in response to emotions and thoughts and beliefs and how all of this interrelates with our health. There's another area of research that I'm very interested in, which is how does taking a very comprehensive, multidimensional approach to medicine impact the experience of physicians and nurses and medical staffs? I think this is very important because sooner or later, we're all going to get sick. Sooner or later, all of us are going to need to go to a doctor or a hospital and be cared for. And we all want to be cared for in a way that's kind and loving. It's very obvious. It's intuitive. So I think it's just as important that we learn how to help health facilities become healthy and have doctors be healthy instead of so pressured and stressed and nurses be fulfilled. And there's a lot of stress and pressure in the healthcare system that needs work and attention. And so the seven levels of healing can help not only patients and family members, but medical teams as well. And we discovered this in our cancer center um, very clearly, we had a lot of training for our staff so that everybody was fully knowledgeable and conversant with the language of the seven levels of healing. And we understood, Wayland, that there was really two purposes of medicine. And I talk about this in the book. There's a relative purpose of medicine, which is to fix the problem, right. you know, as skillfully as we can. If you have cancer, we want to be as skillful and effective as we can at fixing it. But there's a lot of times we can't fix it. There's a lot of times where we can fix a problem and then another one will occur. Or we can fix a problem today, but it will recur in the future. Life is impermanent. It's always changing. And so if we only focus on the relative, we're always going to be frustrated to some degree. <clears throat> so I discovered that there's also an ultimate purpose, which relates to many of the things we've been talking about in the higher levels of the seven levels of healing. The ultimate purpose is to help all beings experience love and joy and inner peace and fulfillment regardless of their circumstance, even in the midst of cancer. And I know it's possible, and you know it's possible, and we all know it's possible because we've all known people 
who've gone through tremendous adversity and yet somehow were able to connect to a place in themselves that was quiet and trusting and peaceful and faithful and loving, even in the midst of terrible challenges. So I think that part of our goal is to become very skillful in the relative domain and as skillful as possible in the ultimate domain or in the realm of doing and the realm of being and to bring these together in a coherent way. You think there'd be a lot of uh, support for an approach like that, in, <clears throat> even in, you know, sort of so-called conventional Christian churches and, you know, the sort of religious and spiritual world in the U.S. You know, probably traditionally people would go to the hospital for the, you know, the first mm -hmm. one and to their church <clears throat> for the more ultimate yeah. Well, yeah, you know, in the old days, you know, um, decades, centuries, millennia ago, doctors were shamans, you know, and they were priests. And they, um, you know, there's, a, there's, and this was part of their accepted role. There's a great quote in my book from Apollonius of Tiana, who lived in Greece of the first century. And he said, if the healing art is most divine, it must occupy itself with the soul as well as the body. And ironically, here we are 2,000 years later, yeah. and the world is beginning to wake up to the fact that if we're going to have a healthcare system and a, and, and a healing art that really is most divine, that really does inspire us, then it must deal with the mind and the heart and the soul and spirit of human beings with as much skill and integrity as we deal with the physical body. And this is the whole focus of my work um, what I'm trying to do with my life, what my mission here uh, on earth is, is to show how we can do this in ways that are really ethical and inspiring and skillful and empowering and do it in the context of modern medicine and modern life. I think you know it. What's cool. the disconnect then between 2,000 years ago and today and that work? You'd think that it would have evolved instead of now we're mm -hmm. just... Well, there, you know, the pendulum always has to swing in two directions. Um, the scientific revolution began about 400 years ago, and guys like Galileo and Kepler and Isaac Newton and Copernicus were heroic, brave pioneers because they were responding to a thousand years of history in which the church dominated everything. And basically the church dogmatically declared what was true and what was not true and what was real and what was not real. And if you challenged it, you were burnt at the stake or banished or had your head cut off. And there was no discussion about it. And uh, there was no science. Basically everything was dominated by the religious authorities. That's what made their work so revolutionary and so important. But the pendulum, which was you know way over here, where there was no objective discussion about what was true or not, had to swing all the way over here, where basically all the focus was only on what could be seen and measured and yeah. and, and and defined through instruments. And this led to the whole Western model of medicine, which is the biomechanical model of medicine that has led to all of these technologies that we all know and love. You know, this camera, these cell phones, 
MRI scans, PET scans, chemotherapy, <clears throat> monoclonal antibodies, all this came out of this pendulum swinging over to here that says, you know what, we're going to abandon this emotional stuff and the spiritual stuff because we want to know what's real. And it went all the way in this direction. Now it's got to come back, hopefully, more in the center. Okay, we don't want to abandon this. Sure. But we need to embrace the mind and the heart and our emotions because we know that... Um, this model doesn't work either. You know, we have more drugs, but people are not necessarily healthier. Right. We've got, you know, more technologies, but people are not health happier. But we I mean, can, on a positive level, I think, you know, I think it's sort of straightforward when suddenly you have chemotherapy mm -hmm. and things here, and suddenly you have even rudimentary ways to relate to something like cancer, you're going to dump all the crystals and acupuncture and mm -hmm. just go for the gold, you know? Go for stuff that can be proven to actually have an effect. And then, like you were saying, at the end of the day, mm -hmm. when it's not, there's still no cure and, you know, it's not a final solution, mm -hmm. you realize you just forgot about the mind and the heart and mm -hmm. the spirit and, you know, thousands of years of history of human right. kind of spiritual, religious exploration. So. And we're fortunate that we are living in a time where we can even have this conversation. Yeah. <clears throat> and I think we're fortunate, Waylon, to be able to recognize that we are going to have to create the healthcare system that we want for our loved ones. No one is going to do it for us. Well, it's exciting with the baby boom generation mm -hmm. because I think a lot of people probably feel like yourself. They don't want crystals, but they also don't want, you know, just sterile unhealthy hospital environments with, you know, some drugs and, you know, good luck. Yeah, which don't work half the time. Right. Which costs a million, billions of billions dollars. Billions of dollars. Their family doesn't, there's not that loving sort of experience of passing away. And so probably, probably an entire generation, my, my parents' generation is probably looking for something that's not new agey necessarily, but has some religious and spiritual you know, relates with the mind. I mean, what a revolutionary concept, the heart. Right. So I think that, I mean, that's why we were so excited. This is an interview unlike pretty much any we've done um, with Elephant, but that's why we're so excited to find someone like yourself who's not only <coughs> doing it in a grounded way, in, in mm -hmm. your own training and experience, you've worked with hundreds of patients, and uh, but at the same time you're doing it in a prominent way on the national scene, and at the same time you're combining like you were saying in the very beginning, East and West. And that's a tough thing to do. Mm -hmm. Because it's very, that's where spiritual materialism is, we always talk about in Elephant. Right, sure. You just take whatever sounds good and, mm -hmm. you know, have a little acupuncture here and a little, you know, chemotherapy there and throw it all together and right. good luck, you know. I mean, it's more just, that's where the scientific people get a little bit like, okay. Do you want to talk a little bit about the Medicine Buddha? There's a very special story with that uh, Medicine Buddha Tanka. I um, mentioned that I lived in an ashram for four years in my early 20s right. before going to medical school. Right. And I was introduced there to the in great... India, this is... No, it was in the United States. Oh, okay. And it was in Florida. And I, I was introduced to the great spiritual traditions of the world at that point. Hinduism, Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism... Um, Advaita Vedanta, I learned yoga, practiced meditation for hours a day, and became a vegetarian. And 
dive very deeply into these profound waters of of spiritual uh, knowledge and um, experienced a strong desire to go to the east it was kindled during this time and I was able to fulfill this desire for the first time when I went to Nepal on the border of Tibet as I mentioned earlier in medical school and <clears throat> it was there that I really discovered Ayurveda and Tibetan medicine for the first time and began to learn about the teachings of the Medicine Buddha in particular and what he was offering the world and I wanted to know you know if Medicine Buddha was alive today if he could speak to us across 2500 years of time and space what would he say what would he want us to know and um, there is a text that's the core text of Tibetan Buddhism called the Four Tantras or the Gyushi in Tibetan which is abbreviated um, translation of the long title in Tibetan which translates in English to the secret treatise of instructions on the eight branched essence of immortality uh-huh. an amazing amazing uh, title of a book that's yeah. the core teachings of the Medicine Buddha and so I became uh, obsessed with this knowledge and I wanted to learn everything I could about it and so I started trying to plan how I could get to Tibet and I finally went to Tibet in 1988 during my residency training and I went to Lhasa to because I wanted to go to the source of these teachings and I wanted to go to the Menzikong which had historically been um, the, the, the school where Tibetan medicine was taught in, in, in Tibet for, for a long time and when I got to Tibet I I asked my guide if he could possibly help me find an authentic Tanka of the Medicine Buddha because I had studied these images and I was just in love with them and I wanted a real authentic Medicine Buddha Tanka because I felt like this was part of my lineage in some way and I um, went on my tour in Tibet and just before I was leaving this Tanka showed up and I was able to buy this Tanka and and we got it out of Tibet and I was on my way to Dharamsala, India where I was going to do some work at the at the what's called the TMAI, the Tibetan Medical Astro and, and uh, Institute in Dharamsala and when I was there I wrote a long report of what I had seen and learned in Tibet and I, and I presented it to the Dalai Lama and I, had re- I requested an audience with him and eventually I was granted an audience with His Holiness in Dharamsala on that trip in 1988 and during this interview with him this audience with him I told him about this Tanka and I and I said I felt it belonged to him and the Tibetan people and I couldn't keep it so I offered this Tanka to him um, and he was so beautiful and gracious and he patted me on the head and he smiled and looked right in my my eyes and he said no Jeremy this one belongs to you take good care of it so that Tanka has been an inspiration to me ever since that day and it's been hanging on my wall in my bedroom ever since that day it's been the very first thing I see in the morning and the very last thing I see at night for for all these years it's been an amazing gift and blessing for me to have this and so medicine Buddha is a uh, I mean it's um, what is the medicine Buddha it's not really a deity it's not really God it's not really a living being sort of a principle well there's a there's a tradition um, 
in Vajrayana Buddhism in particular, where it's there's a legend that says that at one time the Buddha was sojourning with his disciples and there was an emanation that came from his heart and from his throat and they had a dialogue. These these two sages emanated from from the Buddha uh, and there was a desire for um, the knowledge of medicine and healing to be given to the world. So this, the legend is that medicine, that Buddha was in this forest and he transformed himself into the medicine Buddha, into what's called the Baisaja Guru or the King of Lapis Lazuli Light. And when he was in this state where this was an, this emanated state of his own being as the, as the, as the great healer, these two sages appeared, as I said, one from his throat, one from his heart, and they asked, you know, if he would give the teachings of, of medicine and healing for the world. And there was a dialogue between these two emanations, and out of this dialogue, the foundations of this core text were created, and it became the basis of all of the knowledge of, of Tibetan medicine. And there's a, there's a long history about how it developed over centuries into its present form, of the four tantras, but its root comes directly from, you know, by legend comes directly from the Buddha himself, right. who transformed himself into this um, deity that was the embodiment of healing. And if you look at the medicine Buddha, he's got two, he's holding in his right hand a sprig of the Mirobalan plant, which is regarded as one of the most sacred healing herbs. And there are um, Mirobalan plants that supposedly bloom only you know once in an eon that are very very um, powerful healing herbs and in his left hand he holds a bowl of life-giving nectar and so it's his whole being is an embodiment of bestowing the blessings of the lapis lazuli light yeah that's why he's that's why he's yeah he's turquoise um, in color and his body his body yeah his body itself is a healing emanation, and, and when you the medicine Buddha empowerments, you know, involve visualizing yourself as the medicine Buddha. So a Tibetan doctor will do these very deep meditations where they visualize their body turning into lapis lazuli light and sending out these rays of healing light into all the dimensions of the cosmos.